Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We are live in three, two, one. Oh, hi. Well, yep. What is this? I, I don't know what that are we is. Still, are we still on the charts in Mexico I, or something? I don't, I've had, I, I don't know. I've had several friend requests from people in Mexico in the last couple of weeks. Have you really? Yes. That's interesting. So maybe people are actually listening to was this. That, yeah. Was that Mexican music there? I think it was. See, si, senor. Uh, oh, okay. there it is. All right, Richie. He's doing a fabulous job over there producing. We were confused yeah, yeah. by some of the things, but... I'm just. Uh, I'm glad to get this one started. Lanny's been texting for the last ten minutes. Sorry, it, uh, yeah. yeah, it's been wild out there. It's gamekeeping time. We other stuff going on. Alligator everywhere. stores, so, alligators, food plots. We got a warehouse seed sale going on. Dove season. Um, dove elk season, season starts. Yep. Somebody's going elk hunting. <laughs> somebody yeah. that's not somebody us. Somebody that's Lanny. not us. Guess who won't be on the podcast next week? Well, we wish that gives us free reign to do whatever we want to do. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that makes me nervous, too. We'll leave you something in your office for you to come back to. Well, I might bring y'all some elk meat if you're not so... Uh... If you bring me back some elk meat, I'll protect your turf. <laughs> I want one of your... I think I deserve one of your ivories. That's pretty serious. Bro. Yeah, that is pretty serious. I don't know so. about all that. So who are you going with? Um, well, uh, we're going out there with the Three Forks Ranch. Um and making some short digitals and probably something for television with some David. Digitals. Is David not, going? No, David is not going. Oh so. man, how'd you miss out on that? I've been practicing my bugles and yeah. my my estrus cow calls and boy, they're gonna not like you when you get out there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I could call one up. Who are you going with? Hey, you know, I don't know who's guiding us. Uh, but uh but uh Jeff Shelby, Fafa, yeah. well, is going, and uh, is and Owen Fennin. Uh-huh. First time, uh, he's probably going to end up having to carry me yeah, down the mountain. That's right. But uh, Doctor Chamberlain's going as well. All right, that's awesome. Yeah, so we uh, yeah. we leave tomorrow. I'm excited about it. Well, we're excited for you. We'll hold the fort down. I'm as excited about this as any trip I've been been on in a long time. Well, I've had the pleasure of going out there. Let me tell you what, it's a great experience. So, so you I should f- see a lot of bulls. I feel like if I can just be under seven. Shots, yeah, you know I'm good. Yeah, you're good. You you're kinda, not hunting with a muzzle. You set the bar at seven. So. <laughs> I thought it was six shots. It he, was really seven. He then? shot seven. I David, seven. how many was it? I think it was more than that. I shot till I didn't have any more bullets. I think it was about eleven. <laughs> <laughs> eleven with a muzzleloader. I'm surprised. JJ surprised said if the you. wind was blowing, that thing would be whistling. It's like a whole pound of powder. 
Yeah. Well, so uh, God, what about blood on the biologic? Anybody? It, it, it started in some places. You can hunt now. I know some guys who killed some pronghorns. Kerry Wicks killed a giant whitetail. Yeah, yeah ten, ten, there were a bunch in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. So a big velvet, velvet buck. Season. Yeah, I think it's shoot. It's a big old deer. Yeah. So yeah, yeah congrats, Kerry. It sure was. And Dudley, you've had somebody. Yeah, Bobby rolled his eyes when I mentioned it. But I had a customer call in the other day. His name's Preston. He was saying he's a podcast listener. And we've enthused him to do all these habitat management things on his farm. He even started doing some summer and fall burning. Uh, And this is kind of near noon in Georgia, you know, kind of near Atlanta. But uh, he had a quail biologist from the state with him and she found a species of milkweed that does not exist in that half of the state. And uh, so I, he, that to him, that was a trophy. Yeah, that's a discovery for sure. And yeah. then right about the same time, they jumped uh, a, co- a covey of quail. And that was the first, like his, his dad remembered coveys being on that place. Oh, wow. And this was, so, so to a lot of folks, I mean, that, that is a trophy. That's yeah. kind of like blood on the biologic. So. Yeah. Okay. No, that is. I, I mean, just, that's ultimately what we're trying to get to. Right. Well, it, it's, it is exciting to see the wild quail part of it really thrills me, mm-hmm. for sure. And uh, the butterfly just milkweed or whatever. Just rare plants. Now, you know you're into pollinators. <laughs> Don't sit up there. I brought you a bag of purple cornflowers. Yeah, I, well, I do like them. Dudley, would you please stop hitting your hand on the table okay. there? Okay. If you don't mind. All right. So, tie, tie. Well, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, congratulations to, to them. Uh, you got another I got thing? one more, yeah. Oh, yeah. Our, our local Dr. Ned tagged tagged a gator. So, did he good. really? Yeah, sure did. Oh, I had heard that. A yeah, big one? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a pretty good gator. How, now, how does... How how does he be a doctor by day and a gator hunter by night? Well, I think going through uh, wherever school, you have to go through med school. Where they you know, don't sleep. For- he's more. He said he was up for 34 hours. You know, <laughs> that's, I can't do that. You no. know, I've been up since 1.30 this morning. Yeah, and you look <laughs> rough. I do. <laughs> Somebody give me Mountain Dew. Well, congrats to Dr. Ned. That's, <laughs> yeah, awesome. that's awesome. It sure is. So, guys, uh, you know, this today we're going to talk. We've got some guys in here from the Mississippi the guys, Department right. of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. And uh, we're going to talk about dust. But before we get started, I just wanted uh, this episode, uh, Richie, we don't have a commercial prepared, so to speak. But this episode is brought to you by Browning. Uh, our buddies at Browning. Yeah. And let me just tell you, so I kind of, yeah, this is just from the heart, me telling our oh, listeners. Oh, you're all emotional about these Brownings. So Browning now <laughs> has brought back the Sweet 16 in an A5. Yeah. Guys, y'all got to go get one of those. I don't have one, but I want one. I know you do. And and yeah, you know, sixteen gauge was the first gun I can remember hunting with. My dad actually has one. I'm sure, I've got one at the house. So I, it just, the, the, I'm just so proud of them for bringing that back because I can just remember the Browning Sweet Sixteen when I was. That was just like the North one. Yeah, you're yeah. gonna get one. I am gonna get one. Gonna yeah. get Melissa to put that on your. Christmas list. It'd be so fun to kill a turkey with dove hunting, dove yeah, t- you know whatever. You could pair that with with some apex ammunition, and that would be a. a you could waterfowl hunt with it. You you could do anything you wanted to with it. You really could. So I'm I'm just excited about that. And it's guys, you got enough time. They're gonna be hard to find, but if you got on a list at a store, you might could have you one for Christmas. Hmm. I would think. I know, I mean, they're gonna be hard to get. Yeah, I bet they are. 
So that, that's what we got. So go to Browning.com, check that out, ApexMunitions.com. Uh, they're both our partners, and we love those guys so much. As, but we also love doves. Oh, my goodness. And that's kind of what I've titled There's this episode. There's nothing fine flying, flying in there, if you ask me. To no, no, it's so much fun. So let's, let me kind of set the stage. So we, we got Dudley sitting next to us. Dudley's been gone for a few weeks with few all sorts weeks. of sticks. But, but he's here, <laughs> and I'm glad to have Dudley. Lanny looks like he's been pulled through the knot hole. Yes. And I because, think that's because he's gator hunting. Yeah, well, and, you know, it is food plot shipping season, and somebody else has been on vacation yeah. and going on vacation again. <sighs> no, this isn't vacation. <laughs> Your eyes are red, Lane. You look rough. I'm, just, look I'm rough? Just, just telling everybody you look tired. So. Look but then at the other end of the table, <laughs> we've got some of Mississippi's finest. That's we've right. got Houston Havens. We've got Rick Hamrick. And we've got Scott Baker. All right. And listen, to the, the, so, yeah, so we want to talk to you all about doves. And uh, that it's it's a subject matter that's very dear to us for sure, and a lot of people does. You know, growing up, it was just such a it's the big kickoff deal. of everything. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it was a social time. Is it the kickoff of hunting season? I mean, that's what we're talking about. My kids actually do Black Prairie for Monday, so that's all they're talking about. So many fond memories growing mm-hmm. up: opening dove, boiled peanuts, getting to pick them, pick the doves up for yeah. your mom or dad. Just so so much. So many fun things we used to do, not just killing the doves, but around the hunt. Yeah. So let's start with Houston. Do you think dove hunting is as big as it used to be the way we remember it? It's, uh, it probably changes for, you know, different uh, different people depending on what's going on. You know, there seems to be more activities for people with kids, you know, to get into to kind of compete for people's time. But it's definitely still a big event. Like you guys said, you know, kind of the – we still consider it the fall kickoff to hunting oh, yeah. seasons. Um, you know, alligator seasons in the last few years have uh, gotten put in in Mississippi. And uh, so Ricky Flint would like to, you know, claim that he's the kind of the kickoff <laughs> of the season. But uh, anything that starts with, the, you know, the first weekend of college football is – of, you know, a good social time in the southeast for sure. No yeah. doubt about it. And it always seems like sometime right around the 1st of September, the weather kind of changes just a little bit. You the, feel it just a little bit. Yeah, those sulfur butterflies are flying, and this, and then just oh, we see doves sitting on the wires everywhere, mm-hmm. and then when the day dove season's about to start, they, they're gone. They cut the corn and leave. They, they go somewhere else. <laughs> it, At it, least it, that's a theory. It, and we always hear, and y'all are biologists help help us understand this, but we hear that little changes in the weather push them. Is, does it take much of a change? It, it does, and I always tell people I think they're just looking for an excuse to do something different. Because, no. uh, you know, and, and I, I hear from hunters talking about the number of large number of birds on their field and anticipating opening day. And to me, I think that's a bad omen. You know, because it, it seems like they leave overnight. Oh, yeah. You know, it's going to be a tropical storm, a rain event. A cool front, something coming. Somebody cut some hay, or cornfield being cut. They're just looking for an excuse to do something different. Mm-hmm. But you would think that if our doves left, that the guys in Tupelo or Jackson, Tennessee, you'd think we'd pick up their doves. You yeah. would. Yeah, they're they're definitely like Scott said. You know, just you know, moving around. You know, it doesn't take much to move them, and uh, it, obviously they have to go somewhere. So somebody is is benefiting from that, and you know. Um, it always surprises us, you know, uh, even if our wildlife management areas or other public lands have a little bit of a down year for a dove opening weekend, there's always going to be somebody that we're talking to that you know, said, well, no, we had them, you know, it was, it was really good, right? Yeah, it's almost like a jinx when you say, all right, guys, I've been going out every afternoon and there's three or 400 service in the field and you better knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. 
So you guys plant and and manage areas for the public that they can come and, and go to Dove Shoes. And it, evidently, you guys are doing it right because these are our guys have been following uh, Lamar. What is Lamar's? Lamar Simmons. Yeah, Simmons. yeah. and uh, my understanding, they're, they're just super impressed with what he's doing. He does a good job. Lamar takes it to heart and wants to do – he wears a badge of honor having a good dove field, and he loves seeing the hunters come out there and kill dove. He takes personal pride in that. Now, is he the manager at the but where you've been going, yeah, Lanny? Yeah, it sure is, and i got to tell you, it's the finest. I've been lucky to go a lot of places and hunt, but that draw hunt at Prairie for the youth is the finest hunt we go on each year. It really is. What y'all do, roll the red carpet out, you feed them, you train them, you show them everything about it. It's it's a great experience all the way around. That You know, that's just a great service that the state provides. Oh, my provide. goodness. And, and these kids, we got to hit the horns for that. That's awesome because Lanny comes back and talking about just how much effort went in to make sure it's that his kids had a good time. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And the safety aspect of it. And then one of the kids last year killed a banded dog. Yeah, it had two bands on it. Double bands. Double bands. Double. Man, can't I'm, believe I gave it back to him. <laughs> <laughs> I can't either. That's, that's pretty surprising. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm straight. So are, are doves hard to manage for? Can someone, one of you guys, I'm not sure which one I need to be asking this question to, but if you're if you're wanting to have a dove shoot every year, what what, what are some of the steps that a guy can do? And y'all looking at, nobody wants to answer that one. So. Well, it, it, it'd be interesting to hear the viewpoint from, you know, all three of us. But, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm going to say I have learned and probably we have as an agency, you, you need to, your dove field needs to be where you have doves. Uh, we have tried to put doves in areas that's heavily forested where there's not a, a big dove population to begin with. And you can try – just because you build it doesn't mean they'll come. Mm-hmm. So you need to be in an area that's got a good dove number. And normally that's going to be in a more open environment, more open fields, broken, um, broken tight habitat. You know, I, I tell people you generally see a lot of doves around town. If you think about what the landscape composition is around town, that's what doves like. You know, but also out in our culture settings – you get in a 100,000-acre forested area, just not many doves to pull from, just mm-hmm. the population, and it's great. So first off, you need to go to where doves are. You know, and I'll let some of these guys chime in about, you know, you know field preparation, different crops they can plant and, and timing. Yeah, so uh, you asked, is, is it hard to do? It's not necessarily hard to do, but it, it is easier when you plan ahead of time. Um, the planning and planting portion of dove field management really needs to begin in the springtime. So thinking way ahead, you know, if we're talking about planting a crop that's going to be mature in the late summer, early fall, to be able to to provide that food source, like Scott said, in those areas where birds are going to be, um, it does take some some preparation ahead of time just to, to go ahead and decide what that crop is. If you're looking at something like corn or sunflowers, what's the maturity period? So you're trying to really... You know, you don't don't want your seed producing too early out there where things like blackbirds and, you know, deer, other, you know, competition that you're not really managing for necessarily um, or, you know, out there kind of reaping your rewards uh, before the dove season starts. So really just trying to time it. Most people in Mississippi are going to be trying to um, do most of their dove hunting that first or second weekend of the season. Um, and so that's where we see a lot of those plantings kind of geared toward is maturing right before then. You, you know, if you look around this room, there's nobody in here, with the exception of Richie and maybe David, that would knowingly break a wildlife law. <laughs> we're, we're just we're just not going to do it. We've all matured to the point where it's, we're not going to do that. But I'll be honest, 
when I'm on a dove, if I get invited on a dove shoot, sometimes when I walk out there, I just get really nervous if I see a game warden at the other end. And because there's so much interpretation as to whether this field is legal or not. And can we all explain kind of what a, it, I guess it would have to be in Mississippi for you guys to, but can y'all explain? Because it just seems to me like if you've got somebody like Lanny that isn't paying attention when they're driving their tractor full of wheat ac- <laughs> grain across the field and they 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 bump something they're and a bunch pop, a yeah. bunch spills out, he, he may not even know it. All of a sudden, that feels not legal. But there there's just seems to be such a gray area. I, could y'all just kind of address that a little bit, just right out of the gate? Yeah, can. Uh, you know, to, to me, it's not complex, but yet we're in it every day. We know it inside and out. Uh, when you're planting a dove field, the time to start planting and prepping is going to be March, April, May. If you're if you're doing it a week or two before the season, and you're constituting pouring, pouring something out of a bag, that's when mistakes happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, so to be really clear and not to be on the wrong side of the law, that your dove field preparation is going to start in the springtime of the year. When you start preparing a week or two or three in front of the in, Pouring something out of a bag at that time, yeah, that's when problems Sorry. happen. Mm-hmm. And and you, and you can go in deeper from that. I, you know, being on the law enforcement side, I've I've seen some people do some pretty interesting things <laughs> that they thought so. they were going to pull the wool over. You know, have a a good a, a great sunflower field out there and think they need additional sunflower seed out there, like what they grew and produced wasn't good enough, mm. and so they they take sunflower seed out of a bag. Add to the field to make it. Uh, we call it sweetening. That's kind of make it a little bit better. Yeah. You know, a good dove field ain't good enough. You got to make it better. Compete with your neighbors down the road, and generally that's when you start getting in trouble. Is is when you try to make it a little bit better. That's when you start getting on the wrong side of the law. Mm-hmm. So a normal agricultural practice of uh, like trying to plant some winter wheat in late August is 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 that not. It, Acceptable. And, and we talk just specifically about Mississippi. That's all we can because the laws differ. You know, different states do it different ways. But Mississippi, you know, if you were planting a dove field, uh, I'm sorry, if you were planting a wildlife food plot, cover crop, uh, winter grazing, you could top sow wheat at the approved uh, planting rate, which in Mississippi is about 90 to 120 pounds. It's got to be spread evenly across the field, cannot be piled or clumped. You can only plant at one time. You know, a farmer, when, he, when y'all plant a food plot, you plant it one time. Mm-hmm. If you plant it a second time, you failed. You know, so you would never plant an agriculture field, would be a cover crop or whatever, and wanting it to fail. So if you go back out there and add to that, come baited field at that time. You can plant it one time. And if you plant it again, sweeten it up, make it a little bit better like people like to do, it's a baited field, you know, yeah. at that time. Mm. One of the things that we see a lot of times is people run into issues. You get a, a wet summer or something, you know, going into the early fall, and we start having these potential for tropical systems coming through, bringing a lot of rain. You know, that, that tops on weed or that planted food plot, you know, gets a little bit of moisture in it. It's going to start to sprout pretty quickly. And uh, like Scott said, that's that's where the planting at one time, you know, mm-hmm. comes into effect. And <clears throat> same people, you know, you, if you're going to plant, you're supposed to use seed, have a seed tag on it that y'all are familiar with and been in the seed world. Yeah. Um, people try to cut a corner and go buy feed wheat. You don't know what's in that feed wheat, and oftentimes we've seen corn chops, pieces of oh. corn show up in it, mm. you know, and 
They, they had a great idea, but it goes wrong on them, you know, pretty quick. They don't think about it, notice it, but when the, you know, the officer walks out across there looking for issues, yellow corn sticking out. You know, it, it, <laughs> that was that's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Fade that starts with an F, not an S. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, it was, it's just such a, you know, nobody wants to get in trouble. And you, and you get invited someplace, and you kind of take that owner, at, uh, that, that guy that's invited you, and he says, I oh, know, you know, I— and you just you, you believe it, but it, I guess it's up to every hunter to make sure because ultimately you're going to be be the one. Yeah, and you got to as the hunter, you got to um, know it's your responsibility. You got to look and ask how was the field prepared. You know, some folks are going to be worried about um, stepping on the the host toes by asking those questions. Just ask them, you know. And and I tell folks that when you prepare for field. The officer out there, when he walks up there, he ought to be able to look. If, if, if it's pre- prepared legally, there's no justification or reason. You don't have to tell the officer why he did something. But if you have to start explaining to him, that's, purely, that's probably when you got into a gray area or all the way across the line, you know, that way. It sounds to me like the easiest way with the least amount of worry is to do what Houston was talking about and, and plant your crop. Yeah. <clears throat> That's right. At the right time of year, yeah. not not wait till the last minute. It's not. It's easy. Brown top millet. Um, people like to plant sunflower seed, but I tell people to do a sunflower field properly. You need to you need to grow it like you would a cotton crop. It's a lot of chemical and fertilize. You need a good seeder that can put down seed at an accurate rate. Uh, but brown top millet is a lot more forgiving than those, and a cheaper crop to plant and. You can legally manipulate these crops any way you want to. You just can't harvest grain off a field and turn around and reapply it to the field. But if you want to bush hog it, burn it, hunt behind the combine, um, herbicide, hogging it, you turn livestock in there they're yeah. talking about, yeah. the world's wide open when you manipulating a planted crop. Sure. Gotcha. Lanny, you got a question? Well, that's what exactly what I was going to ask about, about crop manipulation. <laughs> uh, so if it's planted then you can do pretty much what you want to. So you can mow lanes, whatever you want to do. Nice. Very, very liberal right. for, for doves, gotcha. not for waterfowl. Oh, uh, okay. Before I moved to West Point, I was living in Montgomery, and the, and the, the then retired police chief, Bill Hudson, I can remember him telling me, I'm going to, what are you doing for Christmas, Bill? I'm going to West Point, Mississippi. I got a guy over there that's got a big cornfield that he turns pigs into. And he said, every year, it's the best dove shoot I ever go to. So I didn't even know West Point existed then, yeah. but I remember him telling me, and, and he, he said there were a bunch of pigs in it. The guy pulls the pigs out, and I guess there'd be corn all over the ground. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they knocking, you know, that corn drives down, hogs get in there and just bust loose. And that's the same thing with brown top millet. What, you know, one of my favorite practices, brown top, is you can plant it. You could either... Uh, Cut it for hay and bale it if you want to. Every time a piece of equipment goes through the field, it's scattering seed on the ground. There are going to be more seed out there after the standing crop than what you planted out there. And it's just seed everywhere. You could burn it if you wanted to. That darkened ground, that yellow seed or light color seed is just glowing mm-hmm. on it. So, yeah, sky's the limit on manipulating a, 
a, a grown crop. crop. Yeah, planted crop. And there's a lot of natural vegetation too. You know, that makes good seeds. You know, mm-hmm. we talked about burning and some stuff like that. You know, that's some good things too. To not necessarily overlook some of your natural vegetation oh. as well that can produce some good dove seeds. Yeah, that's. Yeah, so, Toxie always talks about what woolly croton. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> got that. Yeah. yeah, you got a good seed. That's yeah. one of my favorite ones too. Mm-hmm. You just you, you got to be there when the woolly croton ripe and it starts popping out, and the dove will be there. Wow. So let me ask this real quick. So you've had a law enforcement background. If you're on a dove shooting, people are shooting. What what would you? How do you? What do you want your hunter to do as you're approaching? Him? I'd like for it to be an unloaded gun. You can see the breech or the action open, and you know an officer asks for it, hand it to him in a safe manner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know when I approach a hunter, to me every gun's loaded. I'm watching. I, I want it to be pointed in a safe direction. I hate to see somebody rake a crowd. With it, you know, and I I want it unloaded. I want the breach open. When I walk up there, I see, you know, it's unloaded. Prefer everybody's, mm-hmm. you know, to be that way. Yeah. Yeah, I would think that most people do that, but I, I'm sure that you get all kinds. Yeah, I bet a lot yeah. of people, they see a dove coming, and they'll shoot at it when you're 10 yards away. I've, I've actually seen that happen before. Yeah, you know? they so will. So just be respectful. Yeah, if you see always. A, see an officer approaching, unload your gun. Prove that it's unloaded with the breech being open, or or uh, if it's a single shot or double barrel, have that thing opened up. Yeah, have your hunting license ready. I would expect. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Houston. And Bobby, earlier you you know you were talking about the Sweet Sixteen and all the different things that you could do to that uh, do with that gun. Yeah. Um, it's really important to remind people because we talked about dove season kind of being the fall kickoff. If people are using one shotgun for multiple activities throughout the year, they need to, to think about is that gun plugged for hunting migratory birds. So, you know, if they were hunting squirrels in February with the same gun that they're fixing to pick up and go dove hunting with, they might have taken that plug out for, you know, five rounds, uh, which is legal for squirrel hunting, but for migratory birds, uh, they need to be capable of holding no more than three shells. Make sure you got your hip on your license, too. Yeah. D- right. Don't assume the gun came from a manufacturer with the plug in it. <laughs> I, I, I know of one brand, actually a youth model, that does not, did not come from the manufacturer with a plug in it. You know, and a, you know, a father or parent, you know, go buy a birthday or Christmas present for their child and take them hunting. It'd be an illegal gun. They didn't know it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that don't assume. You know, make sure. Well, let's get kind of down into the biology of the dove for just for a little bit. And I wanted to ask, so the, the opening season, around the 1st of September, the birds we're shooting then, the, are, those are local birds for the most part, I would think. Y'all are nodding your head, yeah, so yeah. you agree with that. Right. So those birds eventually start migrating south, and we're then beginning to pick up birds from Tennessee and other places? That's what we see in our band return data. You know, later in the season, of course, uh, hunting effort goes down because there's just so many other outdoor events, you know, competing deer seasons, picking up waterfowl seasons. Um, so roughly 90% of the harvest that we see in Mississippi each year is in those first two weekends. And like you said, that is mostly when our you know resident birds are going to be here. Um, now, of course, that's not to say there there are some dove clubs that are really serious about it. They're going to hunt it all the way through, you know, whenever the season is open. And uh, the band returns that we see later on into the fall and winter, just like you said, come from, you know, some of those other states. Hmm. So y'all are banding doves in Mississippi. What? Where are they Where are they ending up? Some... 
Most of them, most of the band returns from Mississippi mark birds are harvested here in Mississippi. And then, of course, as you would guess, the border states around Mississippi. Um, we were talking just uh, last night just about some, you know, things with banding. Um, and I, I looked at our banding distribution recoveries. I think the furthest one that I that I at least have record of is when uh, was in eastern North Carolina. So pretty, pretty good haul for a dove to be making. You know, it's not uncommon for waterfowl to, to go a lot further than that. But um yeah, as far as birds that we're marking in Mississippi, we expect them to be, you know, fairly local and, and to remain fairly local. So what are you trying to learn from these birds? Well, banding, uh, you know, it's a it's a trophy for the hunter, you know, and a lot of people think that's the whole purpose of it, but it's that's not necessarily the case at all. Um, we're using it for population estimates or harvest rate estimates. You know, we know how many birds are marked and then how many that we're getting returns on from hunters. Um, and then also just looking at the distributions, where the birds are going, you know, are we – are we picking up other states' banded birds at a certain time of year um, as they're becoming more migratory, um, you know, and, and just local movements as well? You know, what are we what are we seeing from birds that are marked here and then harvested a little bit later on in the season? Dudley, you got a question? Yeah, so uh, you say the furthest bird was eastern North Carolina. Um, so do a lot of other states participate in the dove banding? They do. Uh, each state basically has a banding quota uh, that they're trying to, to meet okay. during the summertime. And we're all doing it during the summertime because that's what we're trying to, to get a marked sample of is the resident birds. Um, so, uh, yeah, for Mississippi, for example, our banding quota for doves uh, during the months of July and August is 636. Okay. That's roughly what we're shooting for each year. And, and Houston... Don't you even break it down by sex and age? There are, there are some different uh, sex and age cohorts that we're trying to just so, again, we're, we're marking up a representative sample of what's actually out there in the population. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're, we're just happy to, to hit the number, the overall number. But, you know, of course, you know, it is, it is valuable uh, from the data and from the returns to be able to have adults and juveniles, males and females from all those uh, different categories. Just to- I know doves have a pretty brief life expectancy if i'm not mistaken uh do you have a record of a older dove we do get some that are surprising from time to time you know seven eight years probably i can't wow. think of any more off the top of my head okay there but that yeah that, that's pretty surprising when those I mean, returns come I, I, in yeah i want to say their average life expectancy is you know one to two years that's right, if that's I'm right. Not mistaken. yeah okay Seems like when they hit about three years old, that's about a senior citizen. Yeah. You know, they've outlived okay. their life expectancy. And, yeah. and when they're migrating, I mean, it sounds like they're going south and back north. How big a range is that? You know, uh, because the state agency that does the banding is the one that's getting the returns when mm-hmm. that hunter reports that band. So we don't see uh, necessarily, unless we're just, you know, interacting with the hunter, we don't see the returns that are harvested in Mississippi from other states necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a little bit hard to get at that. Um but, uh, you know, like I said, we've had some of our mar birds that you would think are, are not generally making big movements, mm-hmm. and they're still going to other states. Uh, so it, it really wouldn't surprise me, you know, to have one from Wisconsin, you know, some, some states. That's that are, far away. Right. Wow. And, and they could be moved into the state and us not pick up on because people aren't hunting doves mm-hmm. at that time of the year. You know, dove hunting is generally focused around the opening weekend, maybe that second weekend, and right. uh, the effort dies down. You know, you do have some hardcore dove hunters who will hunt, you know, throughout the season. But as those migrant birds move south into Mississippi in the wintertime, very few of us are, you know, Mississippi hunters are out there hunting at that time. Mm. So I, I know during deer season, I'll see 
little wads of doves. It might be oh, yeah. 15, 25. But they appear to me to be a little bigger than our Fatter, doves. No doubt about it. Is, is that just they're puffed up because it's cold, or are they a bigger deer, a bigger dove? So a lot of that's related to plumage development, you know, just later in the season like a lot of animals do, and they, they do kind of, you know, give that illusion. Um, it could be body condition, you know, that they actually are getting a little bit bigger, you know, fattening up on all the waste grain and, you know, food availability that's out there. Um, you know, throughout the winter time, but um, yeah, mostly it's just a it's just a continued development of the plumage. Yeah. Hmm. So you know, we've talked a lot about late season. I, I'm one of those guys that's always wanted a late season dove field. Would you any tips you would give you give somebody that says, "Hey, look, this is what you should do to develop a late season dove field." Uh, yeah, uh, I would plant my dove field later. You're going to plant a dove field early to target it that opening weekend Labor Day shoot. If you're wanting to hunt later. That early planted dove field can still be good, but I would plant some later crops or crops at a later time so they mature mm-hmm. later in the season so they'll still be available later. But it's pretty much the same thing you're looking for, grain yeah. on the ground that they can get to easily. That's right. And then see, I guess. Yeah, that's right. They does like clean ground. That's oh, when, yeah. you know, talking about the, the sunflowers, you, you want a clean field. You know, the reason I talk about, you know, farming like cotton, you want, you want your ground to be clean. Or if you're doing brown top millet, you want it cut short, as short as possible. So they're worried about predators mm-hmm. and, and they want low ground cover. You know. they, love, they love that bare dirt. They do. Oh, yeah. They don't like, you know, they wouldn't want a underlayer of. Bermuda or something. Stuff. That's, yeah, right. that's right. They're not going to work hard to, to try to find a food source. They're looking for that just easy access, kind of in the, in get the your feet on the ground and get so, feet aren't really made for scratching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're such a a you know a just a beautiful bird, and we see them around town, and you you see them all. And but I'm also seeing these Eurasian collared doves. Are they becoming a problem in the state? Not that I know of, not necessarily a, a biological issue or anything. They're not displacing uh, native species. Uh, really what we see is they're kind of hanging around urban and suburban areas. Um, you see them more, um, you know, in town really than than anywhere else. Um, but uh, we tell hunters, you know, take advantage of them when they're on the dove field. They don't count toward the, the daily bag limit. Uh, nice. Least, yeah. So, so how, how I thought they were. <laughs> I thought they were displacing. I thought they were pushing doves out of the nest, but I'm glad to hear you say they're not. I, it's just a wives' tale I've heard, I suppose. Yeah, they, they don't share the same nest. Right. You know, it'd be different, but um, but no, no knowledge I heard. I, had, I don't remember seeing any research papers or anything else talking about it. I know there was concern, and it still is, you know, watching, monitoring, but, you know, right now, we can't say that, you know, if there's a decrease in the morning dove population, it's due to they're raging collar dove. Um, and then there's the other species, the, the white-winged dove. Uh, are we seeing more of those appear in Mississippi? But what are y'all hearing? I, I know 15, 20 years ago I heard a little bit about it, but I haven't heard anything really lately of them showing up on a dove field. So uh, South Mississippi is where we usually have more of those. And uh, if anything, I would say that we've talked to hunters who were seeing more of a, a range shift northward. Um, but as far as numbers, no real Not no really. Real I've, never, I've never been at a hunt where one was taken. Yeah, no. me, me either. I've, me neither. Not at all. But those Eurasian collar doves yeah, are they're, just – And been pigeons. You know, we get from time to time yeah. with pigeons. So. Yeah, we, we see those collar doves out in the gravel in our – you know, in our driveway out around the warehouse and stuff. And There's a good crop around here in the co-op. Yeah, yeah. Lanny. <laughs> <laughs> I fly back and forth. Yeah, Lanny, good. do you eat them? I do. 
<clears throat> yeah, just hey, get, just a little bit more bacon around them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that sound a dove makes. It's just so. I don't know. You just grow up hearing it as a kid. Oh yeah, it's, just, it's calming. Yeah, it, it really is. And I yeah. guess that's the morning sound that the the the. Look at there, there Richie. You doing that with your that, natural that, voice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that sad sound though. That but yeah. it, it, am I right? Look, you guys are nodding your head. And we're on the radio here, so you got. <laughs> but is that yes? Yeah. You're right. It's funny when it gets a little slow at the dove hunt. Sometimes you'll hear people making that whistle, yeah. just thinking Break it might, out, thinking it might bring one in. Call them in, Clark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just. So, get, t- tell us about what's going on with uh, the, the Black Prairie Management Area. Y'all have got something, uh, a special hunt lined up for that that place. We do start with a youth hunt uh, on Black Prairie. Excuse me, Black Prairie WMA, and also Muscadine Farms. Um, that's another one of our uh, really popular dove wildlife management areas. Um, just just like you guys said earlier, you know, just doing a, a youth event, you know, letting them have the first shot at, at birds uh, on those areas. Um, those areas are really popular after the youth hunts as well for adults to come in and, and use them. But um, really just trying to use the areas for, number one, good hunting opportunities, but also just to, to go through safety and kind of introduce new, uh, you know, kids or new hunters into the, the sport of dove hunting. That safety is very important. Absolutely. Lots you learn out there. Yeah, that's, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of states, I would like to think a lot of states are doing this, but hats off to you guys for the effort that you're putting into the kids because that's, that's really, that's where it starts. That's where it starts, no doubt about it. And, and for sure. So, uh, guys, we've talked about public land, private land. Uh, help us understand how important managing these public resources are for the overall uh, health of the resource in the state. Houston, Rick, y'all want to jump in? You know, I have my thoughts, but y'all... Sure. I mean, I'll start off. I mean, I guess the first thing is to say, you know, we're, we're all owners of the public lands in Mississippi. You know, the, the state of Mississippi owns the land. So we definitely encourage people to, you know, call us and ask questions if they don't know, you know, about public lands and may be in their area. Um, we try to, as you said, manage it for the natural resources, but also, of course, you know, have to consider, you know, public use on those areas and try to match those up as best we can. So we tailor the the habitat management and the hunting opportunities to what's more conducive for that land to, to be able to support. Um, so, you know, we try to try to offer a variety. And, of course, there's a lot of competing interests, you know, uh, different Different hunting seasons going on at the same time, mm-hmm. and so we try to try to offer as much as we can on those uh, areas. But uh, yeah, just in general, encourage people to to get out and, and take a look at them, whether they're you know consumptive users like hunters and fishermen, or just you know looking for a place to get out and right. get the kids out and enjoy you know being outside. I think we've got a little something for everybody. We yeah. we do, and I'm sitting here looking at you know my two coworkers here, and and all three of us hunt public land, mm-hmm. you know, and and um and we we look at it with with, I'm going to say, multiple views at it. You know, as, as you know, Houston talk about it, it's, it's, one, it's a place that the public can go. There's always going to be somewhere that somebody can go hunt. We talk about how expensive land or hunting oh, yeah. hunting's getting. And so we're going to have, there's always going to be a place in Mississippi for people to go hunt. It could be open forest service lands, Corps of Engineer land, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service land, WMA, state-owned state, state owned WMA land. And, and, and we manage it ultimately um, – with a resource in mind, but we take different views on it because there's some places that uh, we can grow better deer on, you know, and we'd have a, a hunters that like to have a quality hunting experience. And that quality hunt can be defined different ways. One, it just, it could be 
having a land to themselves, fewer hunters out there to bump into. The other view might be growing a, a, an older age class deer out there or the opportunity more to uh, hear turkey gobble out there. But we've got other places that you can wake up, if you wake up tomorrow morning, decide you want to go hunt, you can go. But if you put a little thought into it and want to plan, you can put in for one of the draw, you know, hunting opportunities. And, you know, on the public land, like for me, I, I do a good bit of squirrel hunting with a dog. And most private land welcome you after deer season shuts down type thing. You know, they want to save it for, for the deer hunting. I understand that. But for public hunting, to me, what it means to me, I've got as much right to be out there as any, anybody else out there. And I've got a place that me and my friends, my, my children, family, we've got a place we can wake up on Saturday morning and go squirrel hunt out there with my little dog if we so choose. So, you know, to me it's pretty important. And I've, we've heard some hunters, uh, the state has acquired some land before that was owned by timber company land. Uh, timber companies that it was going to be sold. It's just a matter of who bought it, and the state ended up buying it. And those people that had leases on it were very upset. I mean, but they can always get back on it. When it changed ownership, it, they wasn't guaranteed to get back on it. But now, since it's in state ownership, they can always get on it. They can take their kids out there. And so sometimes I think people can be short-sighted with it, but in the end, it's going to be a place forever that they can go hunt fish bird watch the learning kind of opportunities for us as well you know we've done a lot of research on public lands as far as our state-owned lands anyway it's places we can kind of do some testing ground type of stuff too so for for us it's pretty important from that aspect too just things we can demonstrate for the for the private land user mm -hmm. even you know that kind of thing demonstration you mentioned the dove fields you know seeing how that's done so you know that's an important use that we we kind of see in that too is that demonstration aspect yeah, sort of folks. yeah well and and research too rick we right, do a yeah. fair amount of research on our own land you know because we can we have access to it anytime we want whether it's on private land a lot of times we're confined when we can be there so it's demonstration and research is very important a lot, of, a lot of the things over the years we've learned, yeah, have come from a lot of our public lands. So you guys are saying there's always going to be some place in Mississippi for somebody to be able to hunt public land. Yes. That's yes. so important. Yeah. And and now you, I'm looking at you, Scott, you hunt public land, right? I do. Um, you know, as, as we were talking about before, you know, I, I do a lot of squirrel hunting. I got into it uh, just a few years ago. I always done it, but I got my own little dog to go. And one reason I wanted to, uh, to do that is I've got opportunity uh, from just about anywhere you live in Mississippi, within 30 minutes to an hour, you've got public land hunting opportunity, whether mm -hmm. you're on the coast or yep. or near Memphis. Somewhere within an hour, you've got public you land opportunity, too. Yeah. So during deer season, it's, it's, uh, it's probably hard to get access to places. But after deer season, there's probably a lot of uh, private landowners that will let you hunt with your dog, I would think. But so, but you're saying that you have that opportunity throughout the season. Mm -hmm. on the that, That's right. You know, the, the full length of squirrel season, you know, from October the 1st to the last day in February, I've got somewhere I can go hunt with public land in Mississippi. As long as I have access to public land in Mississippi, I, I got a place to go hunt, and I've got as much right to be out there as the next user mm -hmm. out there. And we just need to be courteous. We all share the woods. Uh, we're, at, we're all out there for enjoyment, and we just need to be respectful of each other. That's a really good point. No doubt. It, it, it sure is. You know, we used to hunt this natural area. Of course, we lost the lease, but uh, it just seemed like uh, a textbook natural dove area. It you was know, like you always hear broken, people open. planting crops, and that obviously helps. But uh, in my mind, it was perfect. It was upland. 
So, uh, and it wasn't the best soil. So you had, and there was cattle on it. So there was a lot of areas of bare ground. You'd see that mm -hmm. that goat weed, that yep. woolly croton in places. Everywhere. Um, and we didn't really have to do anything except show up. Mm -hmm. um, there was, you know, like dead dead trees on the fence rows for the land in. Those, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby always sits under the dead tree. I don't know what it is. Well, I don't know either. I do, I, I do like a dead tree. I do know what it yeah. is. <laughs> but like you said earlier, Scott, about, you know, uh, having an opening in the middle of the woods. Uh, when I was a kid, we had this spot that my dad fixed up one year, and it was a good hunt. But uh, I kept trying to repeat it, and it, it seemed to get worse and worse every year. Well, it was surrounded by a brand-new cutover, mm -hmm. and I didn't think about it. But as those pines grew up around it, it just became poor dove habitat. Mm -hmm. And they don't like to have to fly over a bunch of trees and dip down into this little little bitty bottom field. Mm -hmm. uh, it just seems like more upland terrain uh, and terrain changes. They, they just seem to like that. You can almost find that flight path. Yeah, I think by the prairie, you know, it seems like this, that seems how they fly. Is there a flyway just over that broken land like you're talking about? I, I think it's going to be more agricultural land or open mm -hmm. land than it is going to be over forested land. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and just, you know, hearing you talk, there's been several ideas that that's popped in my head that we could talk about through research, either current or past research, about how the landscape has changed in Mississippi going back in the 80s with uh, pre-CRP. And how that has impacted the number of doves in the state of Mississippi. We had a lot of ag land uh, that went back in the pines, and so you you, mm. you you lost a habitat for doves. You gained it for deer and turkey. But you know what? A lot of times impacts one. You know it's going to impact another. And you know these guys could could talk more about some of Dwayne L. Moore's you know research at Mississippi State to, to do that. And we've got some research going on now. I believe Houston that's going to kind of get into what what. What makes a good dove field a good dove field? You know, it seems like doves, just because you build it or plant it, don't mean they'll come. Some areas, some fields are just, they're naturals. And you can try to duplicate it somewhere else, and you can't. You know, why is it? And it's kind of the same thing in a waterfowl arena. Yeah. Some duck holes are good duck holes. And it seems like the, the doves or the ducks, aerial view, they're keying on some, some things. We don't know what they are. If they could talk to us, they could tell us. But, you know, we've got some research going on that's is trying to get down to that. Uh, these guys may want to go into. Yeah, any any hot tips for manipulations you can do to uh, attract more doves? Well, so one of the things that Rick mentioned earlier, and, and you kind of alluded to as well, um, you know, just looking for those, those natural areas where birds are using. Um, scouting plays into that, you know, as far as, you know, leading up to the, the opening of dove season. If you're seeing birds that are on the ground, they're most likely, you know, feeding on something there. Whether you can identify it or not, um, you know, that, that may be the challenge. But um, one thing that, Deli, that you mentioned earlier was dead trees, you know, snags. There are other features, you know, not necessarily just the, the type of food or the food source that's on that field. Other features that can help enhance, like, a, you know, a, we've all seen doves just pile into or when birds are, are leaving a field to go rest, you know, maybe just to, to sit for a while. They're going to pick a dead limb or a, a completely dead tree to sit in a lot of times. And so providing that on the edge of a field can be a benefit, you know, just to, just to provide a, a safe space for them to sit right there next to where that food source is. Um, things like water features are another, another good thing to have uh, if you can incorporate that next to or within a dove field, just something that's got 
again, really clean ground around it so dust can, you know, get right down to the edge of the water and, and be able to access that water source is, uh, you know, a good thing to have. So they've got to have grit every day. When, when, what time of the day do they go after their grit? It's really just on and off and on, uh, you know, just picking it up as it's helping them digest whatever they're consuming. Okay. So, uh, you know, just just like you said, you know, they've got to have it uh, to be able to continue that digestion, breaking down those kind of hard seeds that they're picking up. Uh, so they'll just they'll they'll get it either right there, you know, close by the field, or they'll they'll go to where they need to to, to find it. You you said something about uh, the edge of the water. Uh, remember that lake where the the dam busted a little bit, mm-hmm. and then. It just left this little mud flat, and uh, they love that. It was they just bare it. ground right on the edge of the water. So that might be something. If somebody's trying to micromanage a, a, a field specifically for doves, would be to have a pond on it, something for them to land on. I got the Clean. tip about the dead trees. There was a, a local guy in our area was uh, had a bunch of green ash coming up around all the fields, and uh, they went in and did some TSI. Hack and squirt and, and got rid of some of those ash trees and immediately the, the doves were using them more than the foliated trees. Yeah. So. And you mentioned that the, the the water source of the clean bank. I think that's important of having a clean bank. Right. And once again, they're worried about predators. Sure. And, and they want to be able to get down and see a distance around them. So just because you got water it doesn't mean they're going to use it. But if it's got that clean bank like you're talking about, I think that's going to be more usable to them. And then even if you're not hunting all of the seasons, you know, the, the early fall into the winter, uh, Scott, you were talking earlier about, you know, how you've got to have the food available if you want to hunt late season. But even if you only hunt early season, prepping your field to feed doves all winter, I would suspect that that would make them want to come back more the next year yeah. and, and imprint somewhat That's on that right. area. Well, you mentioned uh, some of your better hunts younger was some cutovers. And I know some people just south of here, um, like Kemper County, uh, uh, dominated in pines. Mm -hmm. But when those timber companies go in and do clear cuts, they have some fabulous dove hunts on them. And I think it's one that is clean. Um, It could be clean in year one if they come back and do a site prep with herbicide to clean it. But getting back to the native plants, the woolly croton, Possibly partridge pre, which partridge pre probably wouldn't be popping out by Labor Day, but later in the season, some other grasses, crabgrass, crab and stuff like yeah. that. And it, it's so out. wide open, you can almost see, you know, sit there and wait a while and see what the doves are doing and go get underneath that flight path. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, hmm. so Rick, I want to ask you, but it seems like today's farmer and. You know, the Mississippi State University and others are doing such a good job at teaching people how to farm, but it seems like these fields are cleaner than they used to be years ago. These combines are more efficient. The way that they're uh, – now I see looks like uh, these these farmers, when they, as soon as they get the grain out of the field, they're turning that, that uh, leftover residue back under. Do you think that impacts uh, how – these migratory birds have opportunities to feed? Um, it's possible. I mean, obviously, the more waste grain you've, you've got on top of the ground is probably providing more opportunity there. But at the same time, I don't know if it's that, that terribly different. Um, you know, maybe some of the crops might not even last as long as they did. We, just, we have different crops now than we did in the, the 80s. You know, I mean, crops are grown differently. You know, a lot of people kind of forget maybe that, 
we did grow corn on a little wider spacing one time. I know kind of kind of delving off onto a little bit different subject. Small game is more what I'm, I'm dealing with. But, um, um, you know, there just are some differences in crops. But, again, I think that just having that bare ground there still is going to have some attraction to doves. So I don't know if it's necessarily that detrimental to doves. I don't know. You guys may think a little little differently on that but I, I think you still got some of the attraction there it's just more of the yeah are you where they want to be kind of thing yeah yeah it just it just seems like machinery has gotten more efficient and yeah, there's not as not much sure. waste a lot of the you know the ag grain you know the cultivars now uh, mature a lot sooner than they used to so they're they're harvesting you know before september even gets here in in some parts of the country where you know they may have harvested beans later on in the in the fall in the in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. But uh, even even if it is harvested very cleanly and there's not a lot of waste grain, I'm sure there's a lot of barnyard grass and stuff in the turn rows okay. uh, bordered by, you know, bare ground that they can eat on. So, And, and Bobby, I, I think you're right about, you know, definitely it's changed. But I, and kind of diving off what Rick said, I don't know that's a limiting factor, you know, in the dove population because yeah. there is, like you're talking about, some natural weeds will come up. Um, tea weed is one I'm thinking of. The dove will, will feed on. It seems like if you just got 30 days of, of growing season left after they disc it in, it'll pop up, make a seed, barnyard grass, you know, some of these other ones. But, uh, but it definitely has, the landscape's changed in the farming world. So let me ask a left field question here, and and, it, and it's just, I think a lot of people would like to know the answer to this, and <clears throat> including myself, but obviously by asking it. But why do y'all, from a scientific law enforcement perspective, all, all, all the above, why couldn't you allow a guy to, let's just use the word beta field, fix it up, sweeten it up, do all those things, as long as everybody adheres to the limit? It, it, it wouldn't more birds benefit? Wouldn't more non-consult? I'm I'm asking because I'm curious. So it, it, what, just tell me why what, what I'm missing here. I, I I'll jump off into that one right off. You know, you got to have rules of fair chase. Sometime, you know, when you know, and we could go into the baiting stuff as, as right. deep as you want it to. Can get deep. <laughs> you know, but, but where do you draw the line? You know, uh, Bobby, are you not a good enough hunter? You can't do it without bait? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess I asked. So, I, you know, it is pointed at me. Yeah. But, I, you know, on the whole other side is a biological impact. When you put bait out there, and I don't know what you're, you're, talk, you're calling bait, but it could be uh, grain on the ground that's spoiling. Alpha toxin mm. is bad. So you, you may be targeting doves, but you could also be limiting your turkeys around there if you're putting bait out there. That's and a no-no, Bobby. <laughs> you know that's a no-no. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Good, good point. That, that stuck that one home right yeah. there. Yeah, so if you're constantly point. putting that feed out, uh, even when it sprouts, like you hear of people, once it sprouts, they may go disc it again and throw more. Like That's going to increase the chance of those mm. aflatoxins occurring. That, uh, well, not necessarily. J just by you doing that, that's going to be baiting. You know, we talked about right. earlier, you can only do it once. For sure. You want to stand. A farmer goes out there, many plants a crop, he's wanting it. But, I mean, you're putting grain out there and in the moisture in the environment and bacteria getting on it, and you're increasing the chance of, of bacteria or alpha toxin and other things. And That's a tough, it's a tough question to answer. No, it isn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. Well, so, I'm not. But they let us do it for deer. I'm, I'm, Are we going to go can, there? Yeah, we can. You want to? <laughs> I'm 
Might as well. I think it's a, think it's a fun topic. <laughs> yeah. I think you know, and I'm I'm not pro or con either. I I try to go by the rules, and uh, I usually lean more towards uh, where what what your answer is probably going to be. Yeah. Well, um, baiting for deer is not a bio- biological sound practice. People want to do it because they presume they're going to make it easier for them. There's research shown that deer movement decreases and harvest rates decrease in a in where baiting occurs. And and I, we hear from hunters all the time that says it sounds like that's what's happened. You know, they're putting bait out there, and when are they getting their photos on the camera? It's nighttime. You know, so the animals just doing all they know what to do. Basically, they're smart. Don't move any more than you have to. You know, we eat because we like and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. They do it out of matter of survival. So their survive, they, their survival increases moving at night when the hunter's not out there sitting on the corn pile waiting for them. So, you know, there's, there's a lot more into it, but uh, our biological staff does not recommend it, but people still do it. Make no mistake, we want to do what's best for the resource and the wildlife. But I, I have always wondered that question. If, if everybody said, okay, I'm just going to shoot the limit, what, why, why couldn't we do that? But you make a great point, Scott, on that. Because anything, we just need to know. Yeah. And, 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 and negatively impacting other animals, is that, that's a really something we want to avoid for sure. Yeah. You know, Bobby, I guess one other thing I would add to that, we do get people that ask from time to time, you know, what, what what's wrong with just obeying, you know, the, the daily bag limit? Or sometimes we might even have people ask, you know, what about a, a what I'll call a season limit? You know, if I can if I can shoot 15 doves a day for, you know, X number of days in a season, why not just let me have that number for the whole year? Well, I mean, daily bag limits are not set under the assumption that every hunter is going to achieve the daily bag limit every time. So there's some fair chase, you know, um, assumptions built into that as well. Um, I just uh, was looking at some stats that I pulled um, just from our uh, our general hunter survey. Um, so in Mississippi, the average dove hunter hunts four days a year. And any any guess on what the average harvest is for the average dove hunter in a year, in, a, in, a, in an entire season? <laughs> I wanna, that, oh, in an entire season? Yep, entire season. season. Oh, it's got to be more than three. I'm going to say eight. I'm going to say seven. Okay, oh, a little, little, I thought you'd be a lot higher than the mm. estimate. It's about sixteen for a Okay, season. sixteen. Okay. Well, they're better so shots that, than you are. <laughs> so they're going. They're, they're going more than once, obviously. Right. Mm. About about four days a year is the average, and obviously there are people that are they're hunting a lot more than that, and yeah. you know, some that are just coming for that opening weekend. You know, and that that's all. That's going to be it. Hmm. Interesting. It really is when you when you think about it. I, you know, it kind of surprised me that it's. That the numbers is four. I figured it. I mean, it wouldn't have surprised me. I was thinking one hunt too. You know, three or four, but yeah, well, four that makes sense. Well, it would be four. So, and and those numbers go into the setting the the season and bag limits at the federal level. Okay, all that goes into you know, like on ducks, uh, the number of days in a season equates to total dark duck harvest in a season, and not so much on doves. Duck hunters hunt throughout the, the 60 day season here in the, the Mississippi Flyway. <laughs> Dove hunting is all front loaded. You know, it's going to be around the Labor Day weekend, maybe the weekend after that. You know, then hunting pressure you know, drops off drastically. So, you know, all of that information goes into the setting the, 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 the hunting frameworks at, at the nationwide level. You know, Houston's point about, okay, if you're going to let me shoot 15 doves for. 60 days, one, you know, whatever that number comes up to, that, that was pretty, I never thought about it like that. I could see somebody making that argument 
unsuccessfully, I would imagine, but I could still <laughs> yeah. see somebody trying to make they that. They do argument. have that possession limit, which I think here is 30, right? Yeah. Like, could yeah. you explain that? So you can you can harvest 15 a day. Yeah. But yeah, so in general, migratory game birds are going to be three times. It used to be two times, and now it's three times. Okay. Uh, the daily bag limit. And um, basically, it's just an allowance for you to have, you know, more than that in, in your possession, um, you know, whether that be a at home or, you know, uh, if you're wanting to, you know, build up, you know, a number of birds for a cookout or something like that, it gives you a little bit more of a leeway. So, um, so like on opening day for migratory game birds, the possession limit is actually the same as the mm-hmm. daily bag limit because you didn't have those, those day one. You know, days before mm-hmm. uh, to have extra bag limits. And I've always looked at it like the daily limit is how many I can have on me and then the bag limit is how many I can have in the freezer. Mm-hmm. That's That's pretty good. <laughs> and and yeah. to me, it's worth pointing out that the, the daily bag limit is the whole hunting day. It's not a trip. We got uh, some people think uh, they go in the morning. I went back to the house. That's <laughs> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I was asked about that uh, prior to this. Uh, some, somebody said that that confused me. And I said, if you're confused about that. You're wrong. That's yeah, right. That's just, the daily that's bag just, limit is right. I mean, it's in the words. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, look, let's go back to the banding, and could you all just kind of start from the beginning and tell us how you band, how did you come up with the, this, the, the way that you do it, and what information? You've kind of hit on the information, but th- let's talk about how you all do this. Yeah, so um, we, uh, we have a lot of our staff across the state um, who are interested in, in doing some banding, and uh, so we uh, try to distribute bands to everybody who has a little bit of opportunity and some interest in it. But... Um, in general, we're looking for sites where obviously doves are, are hanging out. You know, you can't just, uh, just like fixing a field, like Scott said, you know, you can't just go out in your driveway, just, you know, wherever you live and expect birds to, to show up and, and start trapping them. But um, so we're trying to target uh, high density areas where we have a lot of birds. Um, but essentially, the way it works is um, just going out and, and starting with pre baiting. And this is again during the summer months because we're trying to get a March sample headed into the hunting season. Um, so, uh, you know, late June or so before we start banding in July, we'll start, uh, putting out, um, these little wire traps with walk-in funnels. Um, they're, you know, it's pretty simple design. The idea is the bird, uh, gets used to, to eating in the same place over and over. Then when we come and put the trap over the top of the bait, the bird goes in the funnel, but it can't figure out how to walk out. Um, so uh, it is a little bit time-consuming, um, you know, during the, the hot summer months of, of, of July and August in Mississippi. Um, you can't just leave birds in a trap all day. You know, predators are going to come by and get after them, or they're just going to get, you know, exposure to the heat. So um, you do pretty well have to be monitoring the traps when they're set. Um, but uh, basically, you're waiting on birds to walk into the traps, going, pulling them out, pulling them out one at a time, placing an aluminum band on the leg, and then identifying by age and sex, recording that data and releasing it back to the wild. Yeah. Go ahead, Lane. I know you want to ask how you sex a dove. That, well, I know how you sex a dove. How is that? Well, I'm going to let go. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to ask that. Bob, Bobby don't want to steal Heaster's thunder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there, there are some uh, plumage characteristics that are different between male and female on adult birds. Um if um, you walk up to the trap and, you know, you're first, first we're going to get the age on the bird. Let me back up for that first. So um, basically what we call buffy edging along the, the coverts on the wing feathers, the really good indicator of a juvenile bird. Um, I wish I had some photos of it. I could show you a lot better than I can explain it. But um, so uh, if it's a, if it's a 
hatchier bird or a juvenile bird is born this year, then uh, then the sex of the bird is unknown in the data. So um, only adult birds that we are judging uh, between the sexes of, and um, the adult males have a, you know, you've probably seen it if you've dove hunted for any length of time and harvested birds, a little bit of a kind of a rosy color on the breast and on top of the head, kind of a bluish color. In so the a sunlight. little bit more iridescent looking right. on the head. Right. Okay. Those hmm. adult males will have that iridescence. The adult females are not going to have that. They're just going to be a more of a brownish tint uh, to the overall plumage. Okay. And then the day. younger yeah. ones, when you say buffy along the edges, it's just it's kind of rough looking. It's like not a, a, a light clean edge. edge. Right, right, kind of a light color around the edge. Okay. Yeah, tan. Hey, uh, you knew this. Yeah, well, well yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, of course I did. But you know, the amazing thing about dogs is think about how many times if you've been on a field without a dog and you take your eye off where a bird fell, and then you, you know, then you work your way out there. How hard they can be to find just oh in goodness. open dirt sometimes. Yeah. They just blend right in. That's why my, my rule I taught myself as I aged and got a little bit smarter was I do not allow myself to get off of my chair with my shotgun. If I shoot a bird, I watch where it falls, I set my shotgun down safely, and go get that bird and walk back to my stool. No, I, uh, I, I mean, when I was I a kid <laughs> in a you know in a safer field with fewer people, I'd carry my shotgun and then one would fly over and I'd shoot it and then you, you I mean, lose your mark on the first yeah, bird. Where was exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I can't stand losing a dove. Yeah, yeah, that does hurt. And then even on some of the better hunts that I've been on, you can even pick like I'm only going to shoot between. 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. And that way, you're not shooting behind and it falls in some thick stuff and things like that. Yeah, but you've, you've got to, if you lose a bird and all of a sudden you realize, man, that's really thick, you just got to quit shooting birds that are going to fall over there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and not only losing your mark, you know, early September in Mississippi, you got to get those birds pretty quick or fire ants are going to find them. It's amazing how fast they get on them. It really, I don't see it. So I personally just think that's got to be what's happening with quail. When the or in, when the when the eggs crack just a little bit to ha- start hatching, because as fast as fire ants are, they gotta yeah, they get are on them. Fast. Y'all are kind of looking at me like you look, everybody's looking scared at of that question. Gate, <laughs> Rick can talk more to that. Yeah, they they do get some, and they definitely don't do anything any favors. But um, <laughs> I mean, they they have looked into some of that, and it's probably you know maybe not as bad as what people would think. I mean, they're if a adult bird is there, attendant to it, they can kind of keep some of that. Now, definitely they do. They will overwhelm some, but you know, again, we kind of come to the the Texas deal where if you look at you know, when it rains, there's birds everywhere, and they got just as many fire ants as we do. You know, so yeah. I, I'm not I'm not all in on the, the quail thing, but definitely they don't do anything any favors for sure. Yeah, well, they're they're a mess. I, they're just, that's an invasive. That's just a problem. And you know, and sometimes you can ride by fields after they've been burned, and you just realize how many mounds are out there. It's just right. it's yeah. crazy. Whenever I'm picking up a dove and looking at it or clean it, you see, you know, oftentimes you see a lot of pin feathers. How how does their plumage work throughout the year? Do they shed all at once and regrow? Or they don't molt all at once, like waterfowl do. Okay. Waterfowl become flightless, you know, doing it and uh, or during the molt. Um, but Houston, on the when you're trapping and banding doves, there's also a key that you can look at the the wing feathers uh, and and you each. There's a, a code, or a, a, each one has a number, and we'll also use that as well for the molt. It'll, it'll help on the, the age. 
of it. But, you know, Houston, you jump in there. Yep. So uh, what we're talking about, the molt feather, that's what you're identifying with each bird that we're, that we're capturing and banding. Um, and so the primary feathers, which are the, the main flight feathers on the wing, um, basically counting down from 10 on the outside, um, maybe too much information there, but um, basically when, when we're trapping a bird and putting a band on it, getting all the information on it, folding out that wing and finding which number of that, those primary feathers is the short feather or the new feather that's being grown in. Um, because like, like Scott said, they're shedding and replacing those flight feathers one at a time. So, you know, it wouldn't be very advantageous for a dove to be flightless having to walk around for a month or so like ducks do. Um, but, uh, yeah, that that's just another way to collect a little bit of data on how far along that bird may be in the molt process. Isn't it interesting when you guys, you've been on a dove hunt, you get back to the camp and you're cleaning them, how much seed can be in there? I mean, some people, we call it a crawl. Some people say crawl. And, but, but, yeah. but uh, gosh, it's just amazing how much they can pick up in just a few hours. It is in a variety of weed species or, mm-hmm. or food species, you know, weed, seed type stuff. And it's very interesting. And, we, you know, we had a, a conversation here just a couple of weeks ago with Mississippi State to maybe look at that further. Um, you know, look at uh, food habits of doves and see maybe if they've changed over time. Uh, but it, And then we found out after we started talking about it some other states, we're considering doing that at the same time, or, you know, same idea we had. We just didn't know until we started sharing that information. It always takes me too long to clean doves because I'm always looking at that kind of stuff, seeing what's in their crop, seeing what's in their gizzard. Of course, I, li- I like eating the gizzards. I like eating the hearts. The hearts are good. Are yeah. they really? Yeah, they are. Oh, man. Well, my dog likes them. Gizzard gravy, <laughs> and you put the hearts in there too? Love it. Boy, I tell you, do you guys do all that stuff? I, I do actually. I save every heart and gizzard out of the doves that I that I harvest. There you go. Houston. That's incredible. It's so, about having a diversity of seed in there too—that's probably a good thing. You know, we we don't think about that sometimes, but for a lot of these things, having a variety of different food things, there's different minerals and vitamins and different things you get from those varieties of different things that they're eating, and so that's always kind of an interesting thing that we don't always think about either. That there's there's value in in different seeds or plants or bugs or whatever it might be so that's diversity we, yeah. we, diversity. we preach we like that a lot that you're seeing multiple about. things that's good that's a good thing so. you know we all love doves so much and it's just it's amazing to think that you guys are, are out here studying them making plans banding these birds learning from all this stuff because it's it's something that we you know we kind of take a little bit for granted because it I, just it's, i do it's one of the biggest you know points of fall for me and i'm just sitting here looking right now like in there talking about dove nesting i'm like wait what can I do to help, you know, the dove nesting, you know, and those well, kind of things? It, well, stop just for one minute here and think if somebody said, okay, you, you're not going to be able to go on a dove shoot next September. I bet you'd go out there and get to work. I, I would. I would, be, it, I would be very depressed. Because yeah. it, it's just, there's something about it. It's so, it's so enjoyable to me. So That's what a, time of year do they nest? Can you help us kind of understand that, like, throughout the year, the life of a dove in a year? They actually will we'll do multiple nesting attempts, uh, especially in the southeast. You mm-hmm. know, um, but uh, generally they're gonna they're gonna start looking for places to nest late winter, early spring, um, and then you know gonna gonna crank out as many attempts. They're not uh, they don't produce a lot of eggs, so they're not uh, you know really highly reproductive like some other uh, small game species. But um, they're pretty prolific, and they're gonna they're gonna keep trying to you know have more multiple nests, uh, multiple broods, rares. So they're successful. Yep. And would that nest be in cedars or trees or um, thick cover? Or? Yeah, generally yeah. in thick cover. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. Cool. Even on the ground sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think occasionally wow. on the ground. Mm. 
I had one do it on the eve of my house one time. You know, actually multiple years. I don't, I don't know if it was the same dove each year, but it was probably at least four consecutive years I had a dove use the same nest year after year for, like I said, at least four years. I got to start paying better. They're not an elaborate nest builder either. It's right. Not, yeah. it's not a real pretty nest. And the, right. it seems to be more often than not, you know, closer to the ground. Or that could be me. But yeah. whenever I've seen one, it's usually, I don't know, within 10 or 12 feet of the ground. But yeah, Lanny, you made a good point. Uh, we intensively manage a lot of our yeah. land for deer and turkeys, but we it'd just, be cool yeah. to manage uh, some for you know, spots year-round for doves. Try to try to help them out. I love a winter dove hunt. It's not near as hot. That's right. They seem like they're bigger. Maybe a little slower. <laughs> I don't know. I think they get fat, faster as the season goes. Or maybe but, I get quicker. But it been there, you know, debatably they're. I, they're my favorite wild game meat. I uh, mean, I absolutely love them. They're my favorite, too. They are. No doubt about it. Yeah, they're, they're, they're so good. Delicious. So, well, you know, I guess before I, I lose this train of thought, I want to make sure I ask you guys, where do y'all, have you guys seen any panthers here in Mississippi? Where, <laughs> yeah, that's my guys? favorite subject. I felt like Am I it, the only one? <laughs> oh, no. No, well, let's let them answer. They, uh, they, have I seen one? Well, any, many of y'all have a panther story. Oh, oh we... There's not a I'm day sure that they doesn't hear go by our Jackson office answering phones. We get multiple calls a day on, <laughs> on sightings, you know, but nobody's been able to to give us proof, whether it be a, a track or scat or, you know, yeah. a picture of one yet. So I tried to find a track on the one I saw. I, I don't, I'm looking at Houston. I think he's got a he's story. He's seen one. I know no, I, I think Scott answered that uh, about the best way he can answer <laughs> it, it, And I think, you know, this is me talking. I'm speaking with uh, Richard Rummel that's, you know, work with our, 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 our large, inherently dangerous animals, black bear biologists, and he thinks at some point in time, one will have a sighting. You know, they've moved into Arkansas. I think there's one sighted in uh, Louisiana. You know, so at some point in time, there's probably going to be a male that just comes a long way from Texas or Oklahoma, you know, and shows up. But I think it'll be well documented with many game cameras as we have in the, the woods. It'll be well documented probably when it happens, but, you know, up to today, you know, it, we don't have any documentation. We've got a handful of black bears in the state, and they still manage to get run over by cars. We ain't <laughs> yeah. had a black panther run over yet. <laughs> now, I do need to clarify. What I saw was not a black panther. Well, now he said black panther. I, know, I didn't, that's not I, what I, I saw. But, but you knew what I was talking about. That's because they've said to me that I yeah. believe it was a black panther now, but no, it wasn't a black panther. And, and I, I've had some friends, you know, people that, you know, I, I, I believe they saw something. But when it comes to, to be able to document it, give yeah. proof, hadn't been able to. But I, I do believe they saw something. Just yeah. I don't know if it is what they thought it was. I know what I saw. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so fun. Everybody knows somebody that's got some kind of story. I bet it does drive you guys yeah, crazy. I bet it does, too. Well, let's say if you're trying to get photo, follow the same things that you would like. You're trying to do a buck identification. You know, the worst things we get is when you get this little speck of something 300 yards out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, there he is. Tell me what this is. <laughs> yeah. That's like some of the tree ID I have to do. Yeah, some right. of the photos that come in. So we did, we did a – last year, we did a just kind of tongue-in-cheek podcast about uh, uh, long tail cat cats. stories Sorry, and when it was over with our Facebook pages kind of blew up and there were a lot of people in Mississippi and Alabama that sent us pictures and you were just like that sure looks like a long tail uh, cat it was pretty interesting I mean one guy said they have one mounted not too far from from here that was killed on that property yeah 
I, uh, it's a guy I know, uh, lives in the same hometown. He got on one of um, our waterfowl forums. Year, year, this is years ago, back when you still had forums instead of you know social media like you do yeah. today. But he went through um, a, a lot of work, great length of um, photoshopping. I remember I was on that forum. Okay, I'm not going <laughs> to tell anybody my name. But he photoshopped one, you know, into a picture. He, you know, and I mean. It looked great and all, the same trees in the background and match up. And our phones blew up in the Jackson office about this. And it was people looking on that, you know, that form. And it's got to be true just because it's on the Internet. It, it happened. Of course. And, and I knew the guy. I, had, I called him and said, man, you've got to take that down. We've got to have some relief in the Jackson office. It's, it's wearing us out. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. That, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, so what about doves? Or what's something that we need to ask we're not asking? Is there any questions? Something about the the biology that you that you guys want to make sure we get communicated? I think one one of the things I was just thinking back through when we talked about habitat management, just some of the, the common things that we see, maybe common mistakes that we see, and one of those that we see pretty regularly every year is using too much seed when they're planting, specifically with sunflowers. That's a really common problem. Think, you know, people think, you know, if some is good, more is better. You know, I'm going to grow as many flowers as I can. Well, I mean, you might grow a lot more flowers, but you're not going to produce a lot more seeds on those individual flowers. Um, so pay attention to those planting rates on whatever it is you're planting, planting dates and the rates. Um, that'll, that'll help go a long way with your end product. You know, we've, we have learned that just about everything that we plant, that we sell it from the biologic company, that less is more almost always. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it took a little while to kind of convince ourselves of that, but that's the case. I mean, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that as well, unprompted. So. We were, uh, this is kind of getting off subject, but we had somebody submit a photo of, of some radish planted uh, one pound per acre. And those things were absolutely huge because they had room to spread out. Yeah. But that, that's way under our normal recommendation, but pretty neat to hear. Well, guys, this has been really interesting. Lanny, I'm going to look at you. Uh, you got another question for the forum? Or? Uh, well, you know, I think my ultimate is like what I can do as a gamekeeper, you know, to ensure there's more doves around. And I think we've done, they've done a really good job of helping us understand that today. Yeah. What would you say you've learned? Uh, I have learned to start thinking. I mean, for me, when I think about birds, I think about nesting success. I guess that's because of, you know, I'm so turkey oriented. Uh, but that's where my mind immediately goes is, you know, if we want more doves, we got to have more young doves. So, you know, what we can do to uh, create more habitat, to make them more successful in that. And, you know, hunting them right and treating the resource with respect. That's the most thing we've got to do. Yeah. What about you, Dudley? I, I just learned this whole time, and, and we talked about diversity a lot. Um, even if you're not specifically managing for doves, uh, you know, spring burning, burning in the fall, uh, managing your edges, you know, to where you've got more bare ground. So some of the things you're doing uh, for deer and turkey can also benefit dove. Not, not 100%, but it works. Yeah, Diversity always wins. Well, what you guys are doing this, uh, and the, and really the only example that I know to talk about is the one Lanny's experienced down here at the Black Prairie, and the the youth hunt is fantastic. I, we we I've been watching the footage the guys are bringing back of of what Lamar's done in managing that habitat. There, there's he's doing it all the right way. It's just incredible. Yeah, you want to see a properly prepared field? Go out there and check it out. 
Yeah, it, it really is. So I ask, what, what's everybody learned? I learned I need to unload my gun when I see the game warden walking up. And uh, I always treat you guys with respect. I, I really do. But take my hat off to you. Y'all got a tough job. And, no doubt. And, and what, we love game wardens everywhere. We support the, with all of our – all that we can. So I just, I just want to make sure everybody listening, that's what we need to do when they walk up on us now. So. And I want to send some praise to MDWFP period. I mean, I, of course, I'm Mississippi – Born and raised, but I don't know of other agency that that works as well with the resource and with the hunters than these guys do. I really don't. So, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You I'm know, telling you, um, it, the the alligator season is kind of an example of that. It uh, really is. Which people asking for something yeah. and and you guys reacted. And every time I'm, and of course, I'm with my my kids all the time now. Every time I run into a ward with my kids, they are more focused on those kids and what's going on with them, and excited to see those guys in the woods and anything. So, well, it's a great thing. Lenny, the other thing, they basically admitted uh, that Mississippi now has a large animal predator control specialist who thinks we're going to start seeing these cats show up They're in the future. Track of it. <laughs> so, They're keeping track You're saying there's a chance. There's a chance. There's a it's chance. coming. It could happen. Now, mine wasn't Alabama. I will put that there. It wasn't something out there. So well, that's a whole different story. That's now. right. Yeah. Uh, they believe that. <laughs> wow. Well, look, we've, we've enjoyed having you guys. Dudley, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you all. Have you got an ask, Dudley? Well, not really, but we had talked about... Uh, we doing rapid fire today? Well... No. We had talked about the webworms. You had commented the other day about what? how bad the webworms are Are you fall. seeing them lately? Yeah, yeah, I've seen them. You know, and I've got a whole different perspective on probably what Dudley's going to talk about now because I've heard him talk about this around the office. So um, I think it's a pretty good thing. Yeah, so um, about the fall webworms. If you're driving around town and you see this white stuff... In uh, the trees. In, in the trees, uh, those are those are fall webworms. You know, some people call them tent tent worms. Well, that's the the spring and summer, and that's a slightly different species. Uh, but this is uh, Hyphantria cunea, and I'm probably of mispronouncing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, up, uh, they're in North America. They're native here, but they've they've expanded all pretty much all over the world, mm-hmm. um, and so they're probably a nuisance over there. Uh, but um, I don't even know where to start, but it, it's really a heavy year around here. Uh, where you typically see them, uh, I wrote some species down, pecan, elm, hickory, persimmon, sweet gum, maple. All of those are uh, deciduous hardwoods. See them sometimes in mulberry, sycamore. Uh, out west, you see them more in things like cottonwoods, alders, and, mm-hmm. and willows. Um, but, uh, you know, they lay their eggs on the underside of the leaves. They, they, they hatch, they start eating the underside, the tops of the, and the tops of the leaves, and then they get big enough to where they're just eating all the leaves. And they form this silky web around them that, uh, is there to try to protect, protect them from, them. from predators. Um, and, uh, then they, it's this, you know, they have different colors and things, so you just identify them by you know the trees they're in and the and the webs, but um, will it kill the tree? No, no. That's um, I think Dudley's point. You know these are beneficial things. I, I get phone calls all the time and emails of you know how do I control these? Um, and uh, we would like to take a little bit of a different take on that or have a different perspective. Now, if this is your brand new seedling you planted. Uh, here in the South, they can have two cycles, so it would be very taxing on your seedling if it's you know one, two, right. three years old. If it completely defoliated it, and then there was another crop behind them that completely defoliates it, 
twice where they have no energy. But, uh, you know, and uh, we call those, those little caterpillars nowadays, instead of calling them a pest, we call them bird food. Mm-hmm. Uh, turkeys, you know, bluebirds, when they, in, all, most birds, they get insects. A lot of times insect larvae take it back to the nest, feed it to the young. That's protein. They've got to have it. Everybody's got to have something to eat. So uh, just think twice, you know. A lot of times you can, if it's on a small seedling or sapling, you can just get another stick out of a tree and maybe maybe brush it out of it or shake it, try to get as many of them out of, of it as you can. But uh, you don't have to eradicate every single webworm nest you see. No, so if it's in a healthy tree, leave it. Yep. Thank you, Mr. Know-it-all. Cool stuff. You, can, you could probably ask an entomologist and get a lot more specific information about them, but well, it's that's what I need to know. Before we started talking about in the office, I wanted to take a broom and knock them out of every tree I saw. Yeah, I don't like Hold up. Dove might eat that. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, that's, that's inter- interesting. Well, thank you, Dudley. That was yeah. really good. So, hey, before you guys leave, I want to ask y'all, as a team, one question, a trivia question. If y'all get this right, a listener uh, that has left a review, a guy named Anthony09 is who you're playing for. Anthony09 will win a prize if y'all get this correctly. And uh, it's a real simple question. We all being all scientific <laughs> minds should be able to. You can to... phone a friend, too, if you need to. It's no big so deal. Y'all can, Gotta huddle up. You, you know, huddle between yourself. You can ask Lanny or Dudley for help. They don't know about this question. Either, so. I don't. So it's uh, it's pretty simple. When you think about the range of the white-tailed deer, pretty diverse animal. Yeah. Are there, could there be, white-tails in northern South America? Northern South America. Like Colombia and Is that and south Venezuela? of Central America? Yeah. That is south of Central America, yeah. connected by the... That, uh, that, yeah. that little thin piece of ground right there. <laughs> so you know they're in Mexico. So could there be whitetails in northern South, South America? America? Yep. Do you know the answer to this? I do know the answer, yes, I do. Could or is? Is. That's right. That's where I was going. Could or yeah. is. There we go. It, 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 <laughs> sorry. Are they there? Uh, hmm. Huh. I mean... <laughs> well, you could look it up to. to, to I have a guess. Yeah, so, so maybe they can swim the canal. Yeah, yeah, yeah got to get across the Panama, don't they? That's not something that we think to study up on, you know. But I have a guesstimate, a guess in my mind. Uh, I'm gonna let Rick answer. Oh, he, he's the, he's the quietest on. one, but the highest IQ. Right? Yeah. Have you ever noticed in a crowd there's a correlation there? The one that generally runs her mouth the most generally ain't the brightest. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, Rick, what's the answer? I'm just guessing. I'll, I'll, I'll say yes. Oh, my goodness. He got it right. Hey. I'm going to South America. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That is yeah, amazing. when's the rut down there? I don't oh, know. That's a good question. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. So I, I, yeah, I don't know. Wait, why don't you look that up, Doug? What's your next source time? on that? Uh, that would be the interweb. W- Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia said it's true. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's well, what I used to write all my papers in college. Yeah, so Anthony you, could, you, you thought you were really going to stump the biologist with a deer question? Well, I, you know, I kind of kind of try. We've been asking some easy questions. Well, I tell you what, I didn't know that. That's a pretty good one. So. 
Yeah. South America. South America. Yeah. So what did he win? Well, so he, uh, Anthony, 09, if you get in touch with us, you win a GameKeeper package that's got a new black GameKeeper uh, I hadn't metal seen that one yet. That looks pretty good. Tag. Yeah. Yeah, that car tag looks fantastic. A hat and a magazine. We'll send him a bunch of stuff. All kind of good stuff. stuff. Yeah, Anthony 09. So get in touch with Congratulations, us. Congratulations, Anthony. Yeah, we got this right out of Toxie's closet. So. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> right by the shotgun. Houston Havens, we, we just we've heard so much good about you and yes. what you're doing with the waterfowl and uh, and the, obviously the doves and we just hear a lot of good things about Rick Hamrick. Don't hear as much good about you, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. We we I've seen you on some programs before and uh, Scott Baker. Uh, we're just so proud that you guys came and uh, yeah, we appreciate what y'all do. The appreciate. MD. WFMP. WFP. Best that's a agency mouthful. in the nation, in my opinion. They're sure. a lot of fun, that's they for are. sure. They're so helpful. I mean, yeah. uh, William McKinley helped my, helped my stepdad the other day with a question. He emailed in about a deer he saw. He immediately responded. They're always so helpful. So let me tell you all, just before we end this, let me just tell you. So I grew up in Alabama. So I moved here when— uh, I was about Nine, 30 years yeah. old. So, so say for the the first 20 years of my life, I was hunting in Alabama. Dove season always started at noon. You could not shoot a dove before noon, and that, you know, for, yeah, that was just I the way it that. was. And so that that first day, then the next once the season got going, you could. When I moved to Mississippi. They started shooting. They were shooting as soon as the sun came up on the opening day. And I started asking some questions. Why? You know, because there's some biology difference. I find out that way back in the day, there was a politician in Alabama that didn't want, that he loved to have a barbecue on the afternoon of the first hunt. And then some of his neighbors would shoot the birds that morning. (laughs) <laughs> and so he wouldn't have a good hunt. So he he somehow got it to be a law that that first afternoon, first day, you couldn't shoot till afternoon. So Til he could have lunch. So he could have his. I barbecue. think it used to be that way in Mississippi. Did it not? It has been a few years. Yeah. You know, and there's not necessarily always a biological reason. You know, it's a little more. You know, social aspects, things like that. So, and some people still, you know, even even though it does open, you know, this year for example, it does open in the morning. Some people just choose to do that. You know, they'll get Wait together, have a big lunch, and then they'll go out and. And hunt that afternoon. And and then there's the years that um, September the 1st may fall on a Sunday. Sure. And normally we'll do an afternoon opener on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and it seems people appreciate that and it's yeah. okay with it, but it confused them the year after. Because last right. year y'all started yeah. at, at noon, <laughs> and then, you know, so. Yeah. But, but yes, Bobby, uh, stranger things have happened, <laughs> you know, and, and dictating season starting times and lengths and dates. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think that happens as much now as it may have no, happened back in the yeah, day. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah, so because everybody, uh, it, it's a different day and time that we live in. So, well, thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank you all for being here. Yeah, we really we enjoyed did. it. Thanks yeah. for having us. Thank we appreciate what you guys do and and all that. I, look, I want to remind everybody we got a television show on Tuesday nights on, uh, on the Outdoor Channel. Be sure you watch the Gamekeepers television show. We appreciate you listening to the podcast. I also want to say, uh, one of uh, one of the very first employees here at Moffat, yeah. Carsey Young, yeah. um, kind of going through a tough spot right now. He he lost a child. Um, 
this past week, and we I just want to he listens to the podcast some. I just want to let him know everybody here at Monsieur is thinking about him, knowing Prayers he's going. Thoughts, we no love him, Carson. No doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, he's going through a tough time. So we do. Like Lanny well said, and uh, so with that verbalized and uh, with a full heavy heart for Carsey, why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Richie. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast, and be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.